is a disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm not here with my co-host, Lee. Hello, I'm Lee, and I'm not here with my co-host, Peter. Because we're still recording these in isolation during the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. That's right. Like, good Canadians that we are. Yeah, it'll again, it'll be interesting to see how where the world's at when this one actually comes out, because it's scheduled to come out at the beginning of may yeah so either either we'll be over it or civilization will have collapsed and we're the only people alive or <laughs> yeah, these are the only memories of our voices yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway thanks for joining us you're here for a tragedy tuesday our mini episodes about disasters that usually aren't so many and today is actually in response to a request that we got a little while back um, but i'm gonna let lee talk about that one in a second a little bit of housekeeping up front, like I normally do. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell a friend to listen or tell anyone to listen. We're indoors. There's not a whole lot of friends you can see face to face. But next time you're FaceTiming someone or on Zoom or Skype or Hangouts or yelling out the pane of your window because you've lost all human contact <laughs> and you want desperately for anybody to hear your voice, <laughs> just tell them tell them to listen to This is a Disaster. Yeah, that should be the first thing on your mind. <laughs> <laughs> listen to this podcast! Uh, seriously though if you're having trouble seek help yeah the next best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening and leave a review the reviews are super helpful as well so that would that'd be that would be super awesome if you want to keep up with us on social medias at this disaster pod twitter instagram and facebook our website www.thisdisasterpod.com and our new patreon.com slash this disaster pod where we've set some goals and if we get a certain number of patrons at different tiers, then we've got some bonus content that's coming out. We've got this idea for micro disasters, which are a feature where we kind of dive into some some niche disasters and maybe some near misses. And we're producing a mini series about survival psychology Ooh. with our friend and resident psychology PhD, Gary. Check out the Patreon, help us meet those goals, and then get some new sweet exclusive content. It's petrifying. <laughs> I... Lee doesn't understand the concept of the Patreon. It's, what? No, I got it. I'm going to talk about a little bit of listener feedback. And I think that's the first time that I said listener without the temptation to saying reader. Because we don't have readers, we have listeners. We have listeners, not readers. During the COVID-19 outbreak, I was kind of, I've been, I've been trying to interact on social medias. Yep. People that are interested in interacting. And I've just been asking questions. One of the ones I asked are, how are you filling your time in isolation? Got some answers. First one was history podcasting, video games, and streaming services. All gold. Sounds like a pretty sweet time to me. That's right. There's another one. <laughs> Exercise, alcohol, and podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Rinse, Podcast repeat. Seems to <laughs> that be sounds the, perfect. Uh, common denominator yeah i think that's that's good news for us i guess yeah. people like listening to podcasts yeah we're a podcast listen yeah. to us awesome also got one that said emoji for a keyboard and i think that one was actually from our friend eric moore aka blank sun who did uh -huh. the intro music to this podcast oh like a keyboard like a musical keyboard yeah, yeah. so i'm hoping that that means that he's making some new tunes because right. that'd be pretty sweet we will reap yeah. the benefits of that okay so lee i'm just going to turn it over to you and this by request tragedy tuesday yes as you said this is by request via mm -hmm. jamie face 43 who suggested uh, we look into Graham Parsons. Okay. Who I never really heard of. The name rung a bell, but not very loud. Yeah, right. That's who we're going to learn about today. Let's do it. So here we go. Let's dive in. Graham Parsons. All right. Born Ingram Cecil Connor Third. <laughs> That's a hell of a handle. <laughs> Sorry. 
What's funny? Oh my god! It's gonna be a trip when that's the starting point. <laughs> whose name was Whose name was Jesus? Was that Gigi Allen? Oh yeah, that's right, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. I can't wait to see how we ended up at Graham Parsons. Uh huh. Well, we're gonna find out shortly. Ingram Cecil Connor III was born November fifth, nineteen forty six, in Winter Haven, Florida. Mm-hmm. Parents were a colorful pair. Ingram. The senior, or I guess he would have been yep. junior, the right. second, anyway, his dad, Ingram. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. AKA Coon Dog. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was a famous World War II flying ace, decorated okay. with the Air Medal, and was present at the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. So that's... We talked about flying aces in yeah. our second ever episode. Yeah, that's right. We sure The did. Bomber Blitz in New York, yeah. Yeah, check it out. Uh, his mother, Avis, was daughter of citrus fruit magnate John A. Snively. Ah, Snively oranges. There you go. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So there's some, uh, there's some fruit money. So keep that, <laughs> keep that in sweet, mind. sweet, sweet fruit money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were, by accounts, affectionate parents and a loving couple. Mm-hmm. They were also, by separate accounts, both alcoholics who suffered from depression. I guess it depends on who you ask. Exactly. Ingram Connor, his father, committed mm-hmm. suicide two days before Christmas in 1958. Oh, boy. Yeah. 12-year-old Graham was devastated, as was his younger sister, also named Avis. Mm-hmm. His mother subsequently married Robert Parsons, who adopted Graham and Avis, and they took his surname. So ah, that's how you go. go from Ingrid Cecil Connor the Third to <laughs> Graham Parsons. <laughs> okay, that was actually that's less dramatic than I thought. I know it's I like not it. a very, it's not like <laughs> I mean as interesting as Jesus Christ, Alan. It did involve a suicide it, two days before Christmas, that's so maybe true. a little dramatic. <laughs> We're just yeah. used to that kind of stuff on this show. Like, oh, really? Uh, so nothing. Graham's mother died from cirrhosis of the liver the day he graduated high school. Oh. So, he's got some baggage. Yeah, a little got bit. some demons. Parsons developed his interest in music as a way to escape the reality of his disintegrating family. Okay. Seeing Elvis Presley perform when Parsons was just 10 years old was apparently significant in sparking a passion for music. That, that'll do it. That'll yeah. do it. The king. Five years later, at age 15, he would begin performing in cover bands, playing the popular rock and roll numbers of the day. Mm-hmm. A year later, he would transition to folk music, your favorite. <sighs> I mean, listen to what you want. <laughs> you know, make yourself happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the early 60s, you, so what can you do? Yeah, you do you. Yeah. 1963 saw Parsons join what would prove to be his first professional outfit, the Shilohs, okay. in Grenville, South Carolina. They moved around a lot. I didn't mentioned that earlier. Fair enough. So now he's in South Carolina. Yeah. The band performed quite a bit. However, since Parsons was still attending prep school as well as being underage at the time, he only appeared with the group at select performances. Okay. The Shilohs made their way to New York City. Yeah. Which in 1964 was a hotbed for folk music. Simon and Garfunkel, probably. There you go. Um. Yeah. Hey, be. look at that. Look at you. Look at the big one year of listening theater. to you talk about music history, and I think I'm finally <laughs> picking something. Up. There you go. They attempted to immerse themselves into the scene, but were ultimately mm-hmm. ignored. The fact that they were still high school students, most likely a contributing factor in nobody taking them seriously. That'll do it. That'll do it. Especially in a place like New York, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I think the, the Beatles were young, but they were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. When if you're like a a, a little tiny fish in a great big bowl. Like when they, <laughs> yeah, this, this kids yeah. want to play on stage. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> Get the fuck 
out of here. That's how they talk in New York. Um, the, the one guy from New York that we have on this show. <laughs> He's in every episode. That's right. The group disbanded in 1965. Okay. Parsons was admitted to Harvard University's class of 1969. I love this. On the basis of a strong admissions essay, uh-huh. which as his grades and test scores were apparently middling, okay. must have been pretty strong indeed. <laughs> Wow. What? <laughs> I want to read that letter. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> and use it as a template for any time I ever want to get anything exactly. done. Exactly. If you can crack your way into Harvard, which, I mean, yeah. I, I've heard of Harvard. <laughs> it's got a pretty strong reputation for being a very good school. Uh-huh. Pretty exclusive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he charmed his way in. I want to read that letter. He lasted one semester. Oh, for... <laughs> Maybe they should have paid a little bit more attention to his middling grades. (laughs) Departing in early 66, one noteworthy event during his short stay at Harvard was... He invented Facebook. He invented... No, that's someone else. That's someone else. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, in the 60s. It was at that time that he heard uh, Merle Haggard for the first time, which is what sparked a serious interest in country music. Is Merle Haggard a country musician? Yes. He's a big big player, big boy in the country music scene. Fair enough was. He died a few years ago. Aww. 1966 and 67 saw Parsons form the International Submarine Band oh, Okay, with other musicians from the Boston folk scene. Mm-hmm. The band eventually moved to LA, signed to Lee Hazelwood's LHI Records and recorded the album Safe at Home, which contains one of Parsons' best-known songs, Luxury Liner. Okay. Have, would I have heard that song? Uh, I've never heard it, so okay, so maybe, <laughs> probably not. You, you say best known, but maybe best known among Graham Parsons fans. Exactly, it's okay. one of his better known songs. By the time "Save at Home" was released in 1968, the International Submarine Band was no more. Oh, I guess the submarine sank. <laughs> yeah, kerplunk. <laughs> Wait, isn't that what? That's what submarines are supposed to do. I guess the submarine surfaced. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to... This... Carry on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) However, 1968 with C. Parsons come to the attention of bassist Chris Hillman, who played with the Birds. Oh. Yeah. Who were the the Birds? They were the band. They do the Mr. Tambourine Man, and they do to everything, turn, turn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, hippie stuff. Yep. David Crosby and Michael Clark had departed the group in 1967 mm-hmm. and replacements were being sought. Mm-hmm. So the birds started out in 65 and they had those two hits that I mentioned, plus a few others. So yeah, they're right. well established by this point, 68. Yeah. Parsons successfully auditioned for the band to perform rhythm guitar and vocal duties. Sweet. Yeah. Mixed messages as to whether Parsons was considered a bona fide bird prevailed at the time and exist to this day. Mm. On one hand, Parsons, along with fellow new recruit Kevin Kelly, did not sign the renewal of the Columbia Records contract. Both instead were given a salary by original members Roger McGinn and Chris Hillman. Always sign the contract. Yeah, yeah, if you want a piece of that pie, you sign the contract. Yeah. Hillman maintains that Parsons was never a member of the band and having him on a salary was the only way to ensure that he'd turn up. Okay. (laughs) Is he a liability from the start? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Uh, On the other hand, as far as the fans and the press were concerned, 
Parsons and Kelly were full-fledged members of the band as mm-hmm. both were given equal billing alongside McGinn and Hillman on 1968's Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, uh, as well mm-hmm. as in the press coverage of the band at the time. Okay. Yeah. Parsons exerted much control over the writing and recording sessions of Sweetheart of the Rodeo, mm-hmm. convincing the other members to record the album in Nashville, Tennessee, in lieu of Los Angeles. Okay. He also, with his songwriting contributions, 100 Years From Now and Hickory Wind helped ensure the album had a strictly country feel, which was a far cry from Roger McGinn's original vision for the album to be a double album cataloging the history of American popular music from bluegrass, country western, jazz, rhythm and blues, rock music, and finally ending with the most advanced for the time form of electronic music. Huh. So he might have done them a favor. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he sort of put the kibosh on what could have been a really great album. Yeah, right. All right. All right. Fair enough. But uh, that kind of has a really familiar... It sounds familiar to um, a Beach Boys album that was never released as well, which I will definitely get to. Oh, awesome. So is, that, pre- is that Pet Sounds? It is the album that followed Pet Sounds or would have followed uh, Pet Sounds called Smile. Okay. And it's one of oh, the most... Oh, you've told me about this. Infamous unreleased album. So you've told me a little bit about it. Yeah. In the context of one of your own musical projects. Oh, yeah, that's right. But I, th- I think it was at a party and I think I was drunk. So I remember <laughs> very little of it. Oh, nice. So I look forward to that episode. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, I'll get to that. Some uh, that and Sid Barrett are my two white whales, and I got to Sid Barrett, sweet, and then uh, Brian Wilson nice. smile. That's next. So, frictions between Parsons and the band formed early, mm-hmm. starting with the fact that Lee Hazelwood protested Parsons' inclusion on the album, the Birds album, as Parsons was still under contract to LHI Records. Okay, legal action was threatened, and as a result, three of Parsons' six lead vocal performances were redone by McGinn which was something that Parsons never got over. Hawkward. Yeah. That's Dave Grohl redoing the drums on Color and yeah, Shape. Yeah, right. Eh? <laughs> that sends a strong <laughs> message. Like, what's his name? Yeah. Will. He was from Sunny Day Real Estate, right? Yeah. The guy, the drummer. He was like, yeah, you know what? I quit, I think. Yeah, I think I quit. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what are your options at that point? Yeah. Parsons left the birds in summer of 68, mm-hmm. citing concerns of a planned concert tour of South Africa and his opposition to the apartheid policies of the time. Yeah. Chris Hillman expressed doubt over the sincerity of Parsons' protest, as he had only ever observed Parsons to be apolitical. Okay. So who knows? Maybe he's just looking for a reason to get out, Probably. maybe? <laughs> More like, yeah. <laughs> Guys, I got I got to protest this apartheid thing. It's terrible. I'm just going to have my hands full, really. Yeah. Also, what's apartheid? Yeah, I got to, I got to, look, I got a full plate. I got to find out what apartheid <laughs> is. I got to find a library so I can look up what that word means. Like, I don't know if I can play guitar here anymore. I'm out of here. So it was around this time that Parsons became acquainted with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. All right, then. They played in a band called the Rolling Stones. Ah, yes, Mm. the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. In particular, he and Keith held a shared fondness for obscure country records. Okay. Uh, 1969 saw the formation of the Flying Burrito Brothers. Wait, does that ring a bell? They played the Altamont Free Concert. That's right. <laughs> we did an episode about that. That was like one of the first Tragedy Tuesdays we did. Go yeah. back and listen to that. Going back. 
So yeah, they I'll did real get to well. That in a bit. Actually, actually, I think they were the one concert. They were the one show that I'll let you talk. But I think they were the one. Yeah, <laughs> they were one. Of, they were the one act that did go well. Exactly. And I figured you remember that because you don't tend to forget a name. Flying Burrito <laughs> Brothers. You really don't. Easily. <laughs> Turns out Grant Parsons. That was his band. Nice. Which incidentally also included Chris Hillman of the Birds. Okay. And the sound was an amalgamation of country psychedelic rock with traces of soul and gospel. Oh, yeah. The group were well received by critics, but fairly unsuccessful with the record buying public who I guess didn't know what to make of their idiosyncratic sound. Mm. While on tour, Parsons would indulge in massive quantities of psilocybin mushrooms and cocaine. There it is. I was waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> Here's where the drugs come into it. It's almost like that. Uh, what's that game where you fill in the blank? Scatter? No, not categories. Mad Libs. Mad Libs. Wait, there was a blank who went to a. Yeah, yeah there, there was a blank folk musician. <laughs> yeah, he was a folk musician who went to blank high school. Yeah. And he fell in love <laughs> he, he with then blank. went drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. The Flying Burrito Brothers made a few more attempts at uh, turning out a successful single, mm -hmm. none of which hit the mark. Okay. Parsons, meanwhile, had become so in love with drugs that new material had become a rarity, choosing instead to spend his time partying with the Stones. Okay. Who had briefly relocated to L.A. during the summer of 1969 to finish their Let It Bleed album. There apparently came a point where Jagger took a moment to beseech Parsons to fulfill his obligations to the Burrito Brothers. Wow. That's how you know you're fucking up. Uh-huh. If Mick Jagger <laughs> has to go, hey, mate, you yeah. might be partying a little too hard. <laughs> I feel like there's only one step to go, and it's also in that band, and it would be if Keith Richards yeah, yeah, yeah. told him to, like, pump you gotta the brakes. You got to tone it down. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe if Keith Richards had been the one, right. then that, I don't know where this story's going, but I feel like I know where the story's going. <laughs> maybe it wouldn't have ended that way. Maybe that would have been the wake-up call. Like, holy shit. But something to keep in mind, Graham Parsons was something of a trust fund baby oh, okay. because of that Snively money, that fruit money. Oh, yeah, Snively oranges, <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he was getting 30K a year for nothing. Okay, so, that's a good baseline. Yeah, so unlike his peers who were probably living on two dimes and a wing and a prayer. Yeah. He was all right. <sighs> Makes you really wonder where, like, do you need, do you need that threat of starvation for really great art? I'm a big believer in that. I don't think it is. Mm. I, I think you also have to have talent and inspiration, but right. It, yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's yeah. a major factor. I think, I don't think it yeah. guarantees you great output, but yeah. Yeah. Being hungry is it, it does a lot. That's the thing is I think it kind of ties into what we've talked about before is the importance of limitations yes. in any kind of way. Yes. If you walk into a studio with a dozen amps, yeah. then your session's gonna be spent picking an amp. Exactly. Whereas if you walk into a studio where you have like your one shitty amp that you've played for ten years, exactly. it's like okay, well, this is the amp. What can I get out of it? Exactly. Yeah. How do I make this work for me? Yeah, I th I think I agree. You need you need a little bit of hunger in, on some level. Like I think of some examples, so the Stills or the Strokes that were all kind of like rich kids making an album. Mm, the Strokes. The Strokes. Yeah. yeah, and they did like they did pretty cool. That album was pretty cool. They did some really innovative stuff in the recording sessions. Yeah, but 
did they ever have a follow-up? Was they, that their one album? They No, they did. I mean, they're still going, okay. and, and I guess they're oh, they are. Okay. popular, but I mean, they came out of the gate instantly huge. Yeah, yeah, right. And I just couldn't understand it, and they just had this kind of lackadaisical kind of swagger to them that was, for me at the time, really off-putting. I mean, I was, that was 20 years ago, I think, so... Was it 20 years ago now? I think it was like 2000. I think that was like... 2001. Was it two? Yeah, it was early 2000s for yeah. sure. I think it was right in undergrad from... Yeah. Was that 20 years ago? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm old. Fucking kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Being friends with the Stones did eventually pay off as the Flying Burrito Brothers were included in the lineup that made up the... Altamont Free Concert. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Hell's Angels, Bicycle Chains, and Pool Cues. <laughs> That's right. As you mentioned, their set was the only one that sort of went off without incident. Mm-hmm. They kind of that. mellowed everyone out. So everyone likes a burrito. In fact, <laughs> I love a burrito. This whole this whole COVID nineteen thing has got me paranoid of any food that's like we've ordered out, but it's only cooked food. Okay, like I don't want to. I don't want anything that's like assembled from things that are sitting around. Right, right. Which unfortunately has cut burritos out for me. Yeah, and I am dying for one. I'm, I haven't had any takeout. Yeah. My world is gray right now. It's just a husk. <laughs> Uh, what do you want to cook tonight yeah just kidding (laughs) after a hastily written second album and much scrambling via the record company as to Mm -hmm. how to market this oddball band parsons became disenchanted and left the group okay much to the relief of chris hillman who was long fatigued by his friend's unprofessionalism okay the band would record one more studio album under hillman's direction sans Parsons before calling it quits in 1971. Mm-hmm. So 1970 saw Parsons sign a solo deal with AM Records and move in with Terry Melcher. Okay. Now, Terry Melcher had worked previously with the Birds as a producer, mm-hmm. with the Beach Boys in a managerial sense. Incidentally, he was also Charles Manson's original target when he chose to enact his little helter-skelter scenario. Okay, I thought I recognized that name. Yeah. Maybe that's why. That's who he was looking for when he was stalking Sharon Tate's house. Oh, that's right. That's why I know that name. Yeah. she. He the, lived he moved there. Out, he moved out and they moved, they moved in. in. Yeah. So fortunately for Melcher, he no longer lived at the address. Unfortunately for Sharon Tate, she did. Wow. Yeah. Parsons and Melcher attempted a performer-producer partnership. However, Mm. the two shared a mutual fondness for cocaine and heroin. Which increased their productivity exponentially. Their productivity was increased to the moon. No. These sessions were largely unproductive, which resulted in Parsons eventually losing interest in the project. You don't say. Doomed to fail. Yeah. These sessions aren't going anywhere. Mm. You got any more blow? (laughs) Yeah. Are you seeing the cycle? Yeah. No? 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 Okay, no. cool. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. 1971, Parsons accompanied the Stones on a UK tour in the hope of being signed to the newly formed Rolling Stones Records. Mm-hmm. He and Keith Richards continued their buddy-buddy relationship throughout the recording of the Stones' Exile on Main Street. Okay. Parsons apparently remained in a consistently incapacitated state, <laughs> as well as frequently quarreling with his much younger girlfriend, aspiring actress Gretchen Burrell. Okay. He was eventually asked to leave by Keith Richards' domestic partner at the time, though Richards later theorized that Mick Jagger was the one who pushed for Parsons' departure due to parsons and richard spending so much time playing music together okay little jelly fair enough parsons and burrell married in 1971 to seal the bond of a relationship best described as 
destructive, and mutually assured at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Best described. Toxic, you might say. Uh-huh. Uh, Burrell proved to be needy and jealous, while Parsons essentially snuffed out her burgeoning film career. So they were not good. Great. So that, that worked out well for both of them. It sure did. But mm. it was also around this time, shortly after he was married, that Parsons was able to successfully stop using heroin. Oh, hey, awesome. Possibly as a result of this newfound clarity, things began clicking for Graham Parsons. Oh. He befriended country singer Emmylou Harris, mm -hmm. and within a year, they were working together on his solo album, GP, which would come out in 1973 on Reprise Records at the behest of Mo Austin. Okay. Mo Austin, incidentally, is also the guy who pushed for the replacements to play on Saturday Night Live. Awesome. So he's got a history of backing <laughs> the wrong horse. Okay. Uh huh. We did an episode on that <laughs> too. Go back into our tragedy Check Tuesdays. It out. That's a funny about one. the replacements. Yeah. A cautionary tale about vetting your band. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> a tour soon followed, featuring Emmylou Harris as Parsons' duet partner. A whole host of Nashville-friendly players. The name's demeaning to me, but if you are into that sort of 70s era country music, it would be like, oh, that guy, sure. that guy. Great. Parsons' wife, Gretchen, who was by now extremely jealous of Emmylou Harris and keeping everything running smoothly was road manager Phil Kaufman, who had, okay. incidentally, served time with Charles Manson on Terminal Island in the mid-60s. <laughs> Can't get away from this it's guy. All, it's a rich tapestry. <laughs> yeah. It's all interconnected. It all comes back to Charlie. Kaufman ensured that Parsons did not abuse any substances, limiting his alcohol intake during shows mm -hmm. and throwing out any drugs smuggled into his hotel room. I guess that's what he needs. Yeah, he needs some yeah. tough love. The performances on the tour started off rocky but quickly improved, apparently thanks to Emmylou Harris, who insisted they rehearse and work out a set list <laughs> who would have thought go figure fight numerous well-received performances at high profile venues maxis kansas city in new york city mm -hmm. for example uh mm -hmm. sales of gp were poor with the album failing to chart in the billboard 200 you need that push i guess i guess always yeah, i know we've talked about it before doesn't matter how good you are if you don't have that marketing behind you. oh yeah you need all of it working work began on a second solo album again with emmy lou harris as songwriting partner although parsons only contributed two new songs to the album the rest being either cover tunes or sort of holdovers from previous projects yep. some going back to 1965 he was apparently focused and highly enthused, limiting his alcohol and opiate intake during most of the sessions and seeming to adapt a diligent mindset toward his music career. Okay, well, there you go. There you go. Well, what would life be without setbacks, right? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so, summer of 1973, Parsons' Topanga Canyon home burned to the ground thanks to a stray cigarette. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Can't well, catch a break. No, he cannot. No. Nearly all of the possessions were destroyed except for a guitar and his car, mm -hmm. a Jaguar. Okay. This would prove to be the last straw as far as his marriage was concerned as well. Huh. Parsons took up residence in a spare room at Phil Kaufman's place, effectively separating from his wife, though not before rekindling a high school relationship. Oh. So a little bit of a crossover there before they were right, officially yeah. Off, yeah. off the books. You don't want that crossover. No. Nope. Pretty shifty. 
Joshua Tree National Monument mm-hmm. is a place. Okay. Starting in the late 60s, Parsons became enamored of Joshua Tree National Monument, okay. where he frequently partook in psychedelics and reportedly experienced several UFO sightings while partaking in psychedelics. Okay. <laughs> Do you think he might have seen the UFO that grabbed Jim Sullivan? Oh, maybe. Maybe. Okay. After splitting with his wife, Parsons often spent his weekends at Joshua Tree with his new girlfriend, Margaret Fisher, okay. and Phil Kaufman. Okay. Scheduled to resume touring in October of 1973, Parsons decided that one last excursion was in order, and on September 17th, accompanied by his girlfriend, Margaret, and another couple, yep. uh, Michael Martin, his personal assistant, yep. and his girlfriend, Dale McElroy, he did just that. Okay. So off they go to Joshua Tree. All right. During this trip, Parsons would often retreat to the desert, consuming large amounts of alcohol and barbiturates, while the others visited bars in the nearby Yucca Valley. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) September 18th, Michael Martin returns to LA for a resupply of weed. Okay. While he's gone, Parsons invites Fisher and McElroy to drink with him. Mm -hmm. When both decline, he replied... I'll drink for the three of us and proceeded to put back six double tequilas. Oh my God. That seems like a lot of tequila. Like he must have killed at least a bottle. By himself. Yeah. And then some. This seems to be going off the rails. (laughs) Quickly. They then returned to the Joshua Tree Inn where Parsons purchased morphine from an unknown young woman. Mm, After being injected by her, he overdosed. Fisher gave him an ice cube suppository. I'm sorry? (laughs) Ice cube suppository? Just an ice cube? Any other qualities other than frozen water? (laughs) (laughs) I guess not. I guess not. Later on, a cold shower. Oh, that'll do it. Because it's really hard to top the ice cube suppository. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I don't know how you would. No, I don't know either. Instead of moving him around the room, she put him to bed and went out to buy coffee in the hope of reviving him, mm-hmm. leaving McElroy to stand watch. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that coffee had some kind of Thorazine in it or I don't know. What the yeah, <laughs> that, that would be the best way to go. But <laughs> His breathing became irregular, huh. then ceased. Yeah. Resuscitation was attempted. Ambulance was called. Parsons was declared dead on his arrival at High Desert Memorial Hospital at 12.15 a.m. September 19th, 1973. Official cause of death was an overdose of morphine and alcohol. Oh, that's a bummer. That is a bummer. Now, Parsons had confided to Kaufman that in the event of his untimely death, Mm -hmm. he wanted his body cremated at Joshua Tree and his ashes spread over Cap Rock, which is... A monument at Joshua Tree. Okay. Parsons' stepfather, Bob, Bob Parsons, mm-hmm. uh, organized a service in New Orleans, yeah. neglecting to invite any of Parsons' music industry friends. Apparently, Bob Parsons stood to inherit Graham's share of his grandfather's estate if he could prove that Graham was a resident of Louisiana. Okay. Which he never was. Oh, all right. But I guess burying him there would make him a permanent resident. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably, yeah, that's actually a good way to argue it. (laughs) There you go. Phil Kaufman, clearly a man of his word and a really good friend, enlisted the help of a friend to steal Grant Parsons' body from LAX in 
and this is my favorite, a borrowed hearse. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, can, can I borrow just, your hearse? <laughs> can I grab Why? your hearse real fast? <laughs> I just, it's just cool. I like it. <laughs> so off they go to Joshua Tree. Yep. Upon reaching the Caprock section, they attempted an impromptu cremation. Those aren't two words you want together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is there anything... <laughs> Do you feel like there's certain conditions needed to be met to properly burn a human body to ashes? Probably <laughs> a certain temperature, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Let's just see how this goes. Well, rather than an enclosed oven with, like you said, a temperature hotter mm-hmm. than the fires of hell, uh-huh. they opted for five gallons of gasoline poured into the open coffin. Oh, my God. Followed by a lit match. Oh, my God. <laughs> what resulted was an enormous fireball. Really? The police... <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Weird. To their surprise? <laughs> or... <laughs> the police gave chase, but the two were... I love this. Unencumbered by sobriety. <laughs> and they escaped. Nice. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah, <laughs> the chains of sobriety could not keep them down. No. <laughs> the two were arrested sev- several days later. Since there was mm-hmm. no law at the time against stealing a body, mm-hmm. they were only fined $750 for stealing the coffin and were not prosecuted for leaving 35 pounds of Parsons' charred remains in the desert. Not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see a problem with that. Just that coffin. That's against the law. Wait, there's no law against stealing a corpse? <laughs> Not at the time. Did this change that? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's God. some uh, research, I think. Mm-hmm. What remained of his body was eventually buried in Garden Memory Cemetery in Metairie, Louisiana. Okay. So Bob Parsons got his money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parsons' second solo album, Grievous Angel, mm-hmm. was released the following year, 1974. Okay. It received even more enthusiastic reviews than GP and has since attained classic status no doubt helped by the fact that, you know, he died. Oh, well, well, yeah. That usually it. will, you yeah. know, add a certain legendary status to things. Mm-hmm. Emmy Lou Harris has continued to champion Parsons' work throughout her career, covering a number of his songs over the years and penning more than one tribute to him in her original work. Okay. And that is about it for Graham Parsons. Wow. A life spent. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I did not, well, I didn't see any of that coming. Most of all, I didn't see the gasoline cremation coming. That really took me by surprise. <laughs> I got to say, when I was reading up and I just sort of skimmed it, not all the way, but I was yep. like, oh, he died. You yep. know, okay, I see, this will be good. And as I was <laughs> making notes, holy shit. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll come out at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You got you got some music for that? Yes, I do. Is it Graham Parsons? It is. Okay. <laughs> How'd you guess? Well. <laughs> so the song is actually uh, a song that's quite well known, though not because of his version. It's called Love Hurts. Okay. And I think the best known version is probably by Nazareth. And you would hear it on any sort of classic rock station eventually. Like, yeah. And go like, oh, that song. Sure, I know that song. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, I think I know it. Yeah, I mean, you know it. Uh, it was originally yeah. written by Bodlow Bryant in 1960. Okay. It's been done by the Everly Brothers. It's been done by Roy, Roy Orbison. Right. Jim Capaldi. But there is a version of it on Parsons' second solo album, his posthumous Grievous Angel. Mm-hmm. 
it's a duet between him and Emmylou Harris, and it's really just their two voices and acoustic guitar. It's really pretty. It's really nice. Sweet. Yeah. All right then. Check that out. It's in our. It's in the show notes. That's right. So go find. Go it. find it. That's an order. Wow. So yeah, that was a, that was a tragedy Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that, Jamie Face Forty Three. Yeah. Thanks for the suggestion. And hey, listeners, keep them coming. I'm. I love the suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. For either of us, really. Yeah. It doesn't have to be tragic folk singers from the 60s. <laughs> Although that seems to be kind of a goldmine, unexpectedly, for me at least. Yeah, it does. But I'm looking forward to your Beach Boys. I think that's going to be a doozy. Maybe that'll even be a major disaster? Yeah, I guess we'll see. we'll see. Yeah, it could easily be a five-hour podcast, so I'll have to see how I tone it down. Well, thanks again for tuning in. We're grateful for each and every one of you. So thanks for listening and enjoying the show. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is uh, tell somebody to listen. This is coming out in May. So maybe the isolation phase of this pandemic is behind us. And if it is, and this is your first time going outdoors, tell a stranger to listen to this as a disaster. (laughs) Still keep your distance though, just in case. Or else you'll befriend them, help them along with their drug addiction and ultimately end up trying to burn their corpse. Yeah. With some gasoline in the desert. Or that. I've been listening back to some episodes recently and I realized that we offer a lot of dark alternatives for people. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just tell somebody to listen to this podcast if you like it. Don't listen to our advice. Do that one. The next best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you listen and leave a review wherever you listen. That's super helpful as well. If you want to keep up with us on social medias at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you can find us at www.thisdisasterpod.com and on our patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod. Help us meet those goals so we can bring you some more exclusive, awesome content. Yeah. Lee, anything else to add? Have a nice day. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Have a nice day. Yeah. Bye. Bye.